Exodus 7, would you stand? Verses 8 through 13. I want to welcome those of you who have joined us live stream as well. Exodus 7, verse 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded, verse 10. Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And all God's people said, gulp. <laughs> Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. You may be seated. Father, oh, what an amazing account this is. Uh, it's a familiar one, I think, to most of us, but it is a powerful one. And Lord, what it says really is that you are sovereign over all the kingdoms of this world, the heavens and the earth, you made them, you spoke them into existence. All other false gods will bow to you. You will swallow them up literally. And we can think of this image of swallowing and think of the many things that you've swallowed up in our lives. And also, Father, thinking about the fact that one day death will be swallowed up in victory. Thank you for that. There's a picture of salvation, the spiritual battle, so many things that we experience in this life that we need to understand a little bit better, maybe see a different angle of. But ultimately, Lord, this is a book of triumph as you lead your people out of Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world, and we find ourselves often enslaved there to the taskmasters and the weight of our sin. The serpent is behind it all, really, when you think about it. He caused our first parents to fall to sin, and he still is looking to drink or gulp down people as he goes to and fro upon the earth. But we have armor. We can clothe ourselves with a helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. And salvation is something that you give. Righteousness is something I get from Christ. Truth and peace. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for the shield of faith. We want to raise that up as we... Look at some stuff that could be maybe a little bit frightening to, to some, but we pray that you would clothe us with hope, knowing that the victory is yours and that light has pierced every darkness in our lives. And for those who don't know you yet or maybe prodigals, I pray that you would let them be good soil for the seed of your word and let it bear fruit in their lives. In Jesus' name and for your glory and all God's people said, amen. amen. One thing that you want to do in the book of Exodus, I think, is look for themes of salvation because it is a book of salvation. And even though it's an Old Testament book, there are still those great themes of salvation. This is one of the great confrontations of history. It symbolizes in typology a struggle that has continued throughout the ages. You can write down Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, a spiritual struggle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood ultimately, but against principalities and powers. There is a spiritual battle, whether or not you are new to that concept or you've experienced it. Sometimes, you know, you can go through a week and maybe not even think much about that reality. And then there are other times, doesn't it seem like it gets more magnified? Maybe you even feel a weight over your life or maybe you uh, struggle with some darkness or some dark thoughts and you're like, where did that come from? What's going on? There, And those are the things that drive me to my knees, knowing that I do have an enemy, but greater is he that lives in me than he that is what? In the world. And so the question, I think the application question right out of the gate as we deal with a contest between heaven and hell here is, who do you trust? Who is truly sovereign? The gods of Egypt, the Pharaoh? all that looks so powerful and menacing, or do you trust in the true and living God? Now, 
I think those of you who have studied the book of Exodus know that there are 10 plagues coming. 10 is the number of completion. But this particular uh, account that we're going to look at, some people count this as the 11th plague. Others say that this is a portent or a sign of what is coming. There's a thematic connection between the swallowing of the serpents of the Pharaoh and his magicians and the swallowing up of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And so God will ultimately swallow up and everything that we are scared of, everything we deal with, ultimately death itself will be swallowed up in victory. Those are some of the major brushstrokes or the themes that you can be thinking about. This particular sign that's gonna happen before the Pharaoh is indeed a slithery sign. <laughs> and some of you are thinking, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Indiana Jones, for those of you who are not familiar. I was playing golf last week, and uh, I often have to look for my golf ball because it doesn't always go uh, into green pastures. Sometimes it goes into not-so-still waters. But sometimes it's in some prickly bushes as well. So I went over this little bridge, and I was looking for my golf ball, and pray tell, something was moving on the ground. And I heard, no. But I'll tell you what, it made me jump, and usually if you're searching for your golf ball in any of these questionable areas, you bring a club just in case. I didn't have a golf club, and I was like, whoa, and this thing slithered away from me, and I was thinking, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? But there they are. They're weird creatures. Now, some of you like snakes. Anybody reptilian out there? Anybody? Uh, nobody? Okay, there's one over here. Do you have a pet snake? You have a lizard. Okay, we'll pray for you. Um, but anyway. And so what we have here before us is a sign. In Hebrew, it's oat. And it points ultimately to God's sovereignty. As we think about the big picture of the 10 plagues that are coming, they are going to increase in intensity. And they're going to show more and more God's power over that which frightens us. This is more a demonstration than a plague, I would argue. But it is a sign of things to come. It is a sign of what's going to happen to the Pharaoh if he doesn't submit to God. He's going to be swallowed up. And I will tell you that the same God that saves is the same God that will ultimately swallow up. Because if you do not submit to him, he, he is the ultimate judge as well. And his judgment on Egypt is a picture of something that's coming in the future. God is going to pass over a second time. And those who have the blood applied to their life are going to be saved. And those who don't, are not. They're going to face this God who is both loving and just. And so some people say that these 10 plagues are attributable to just regular phenomenon, ecological things that happened regularly in Egypt. It's amazing to me how critics of the Bible will go out of their way to try to explain away the supernatural. Oh, every one of the plagues was just a ecological, natural event that could be explained by things that happen in nature. You could call it Egyptian climate change. That was intended for humor. Anyway. But how do natural events know the limit of, for example, political ethnic boundaries? Things happen in Egypt that don't happen to the people of God in Goshen. How do you explain that? How do you explain that the plague stops at the border? How do you explain that when all the firstborn in Egypt die, the secondborn don't die? You see, what people do is they go out of their way to try to explain away the miracle portions in the Bible. And I will say to you that sometimes when we read these accounts, we wonder about what happened here. Staffs turning into snakes. I've never seen that before. But one thing that we need to realize is that whenever a miracle happens in the Bible, or I would say just as a sweeping idea, there's a truth behind the miracle. Jesus' miracles in the New Testament, especially the ones that are highlighted, uh, like in the Gospel of John, tell us that he has power over disease, demons, and death. And there's a sub-point to his miracles. 
A truth about how he opens blind eyes to spiritual truth. A truth about how he raises from the dead. A truth about how he opens up our ears to truth or we're bent over by the the burdens of life and he straightens us up or causes us to walk again. Everybody with me? These are spiritual points behind, you could say, physical uh, miracles. And this is no different. Each of these signs and then ultimately plagues that will come have a spiritual point behind them. And that's what we need to do when we read our Bibles. We need to look a little bit beneath the surface to see what God may be saying to us about our salvation, about things that he will ultimately deal with that scare us and frighten us. You may remember that when Moses was uh, encountering God at the burning bush, he was questioning his credentials, you know, how can I do this? And one of the things that God did is he said, what's that in your hand? And he said, it's a staff, throw it down, and it turned into a serpent, and Moses ran from it, remember? And then God said, I want you to grab it again, and it'll turn back into your staff. How many of you would say, no, thank you, right there. Get somebody else. I don't want to grab a snake, right? But Moses did it, and it turned back into his staff. And then this sign, most likely, he showed to the Israelites to give them faith that God was with them. Throughout much of Egypt's history, the Pharaoh wore a cobra made of metal on the front of the headdress as a symbol of his sovereignty. Even his scepter often was a stylized cobra. So what God is doing here is not some just, you know, hey, let's come up with something scary and cool. This was part of Egyptian life and Egyptian lore. This is what they believed in. This is what they held to. The Egyptians, according to Sir Wallace Budge, this is from McGee, believed in the existence of one great God, self-produced, self-existent, almighty, and eternal. So they kind of had the right idea there. Unfortunately, they felt that this being was too great and mighty to concern himself with this world. And so he didn't get involved in human destiny and the affairs of this world. He permitted the management of this world to fall in the hands of hordes of gods and goddesses and demons and good and bad spirits. And this is what Egypt was immersed in, idolatry, almost like that of Athens when Paul walks through Athens and he sees 3,000 altars, all to these false gods and goddesses. And literally the Bible says in Acts 17, 16 that Paul, when he saw the city swimming or under a forest of idols, he was annoyed That's a loose translation, but it's one I like. He was annoyed. And it means he was jealous for God's glory. He saw all these lies, all this falseness. And then he came across an altar to an unknown God. And from that altar, he preached the gospel. What you worship in ignorance, I am going to proclaim to you. And he preached the God of the Bible. When a world falls into idolatry, Romans 1, 21 through 23 There's a slippery slope down. It says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. This is Egypt. For an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, listen, and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Romans 1 21 through 23. That was Egypt. They turned the created thing and worshiped it as if it was the creator. They demoted God and elevated the things that creep around and even man. Ultimately, that's what man does. We deify man. And the Pharaoh was supposed to be some form of deity. And the Lord, verse 8, Exodus 7, spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, and he's going to, he's going to ask essentially for your credentials. He's going to say, okay, if you want me to let the people go, then you work a miracle. Because by what authority would you say to me, I should let them go? Then you shall say to Aaron, God, anticipating what will take place, take your staff, literally hurl it to the ground before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. He's going to ask you. 
Now, we don't have any record when Moses and Aaron appear, appear in Pharaoh's court with his magicians and all his servants there, and he's likely seated on his throne. We have no record of any dialogue. It could well be that they just came in and threw the, the staff down, and that's when everything began to happen, be, began to take place. But it may be that they came in and said one more time, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, you're going to have to show me something. You're going to have to perform a miracle. Do you remember that the religious leaders said to Jesus, we want to see a sign from you, teacher. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. You can write down Matthew 12, 38. And 39. In Luke 23, verse 8, Herod, the wicked leader, was very glad when he saw Jesus. Pilate tried to push him off to Herod, and he didn't want to deal with Jesus and having to judge him. He had a sense that Jesus was innocent. And Herod wanted to see Jesus for a long time because he had been hearing about him, and he was hoping to see a sign performed by Jesus. Oh, goody, Jesus is here! Go ahead, perform a sign for me. Go ahead. And do you know what happened? Jesus didn't say one word to him. Not one word. You won't even get to hear my voice. And people are fascinated with signs, right? Fascinated even with darkness and scary movies and the occult and ghost chasers and you name it. Oh, look at over there. There's, a, there's an outline of something, Right? Bigfoot, <laughs> right? He's got to be there. He paused for a picture. And we get fascinated with all these kinds of things. But the Pharaoh is asking for their credentials. And if you read a little bit on this and you read up on what appeared before the Pharaoh, what the staff was actually turned into, it's an interesting word because it's not nakash, which is the typical Hebrew word for a snake. And nakash has the sound, so the Hebrew word is nakash. But it's tenin. Aaron's staff, Exodus 7, verses 9 and 10, became a tenin. What does that mean? In Genesis 1.21, it's a sea monster. In Ezekiel, it's a dragon. And uh, in another passage in Ezekiel, it's a great sea monster as well. This is Isaiah 27.1. It says, in that day... This is Isaiah's apocalypse talking about the day of the Lord. The Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, the Nakash, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And God will slay the dragon, Tanin, who lives in the sea. In some of the ancient mythology that permeated the world, people saw dragons and monsters as something that was real and had to be de dealt with. And the serpent in the sea represented chaos and evil. And sometimes even the ancients saw the sea as something that was unpredictable and something that was dark and chaotic. And there's some things that have been pulled out of the ocean that scientists don't even know how to categorize them. Some of them look like dinosaurs. But dinosaurs can't be contemporary because scientists have decided that they can't be contemporary. They have to belong to an age of the past. So they say, uh, what is it? Uh, I don't know. But there are some interesting creatures in the sea and some things that you may not want to run into. Amen. <laughs> and so here's a couple of passages directly at the Pharaoh. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, Ezekiel 29, 2 and 3, the king of Egypt, and prophesy against him, against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster, that's Tanin, that lies in the midst of the rivers, that has said, my Nile is mine, and I myself have made it. In Ezekiel 32, 2 and 3, just for your notes, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you are like the monster in the seas. 
You burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples and they shall lift you up in my net. I'm gonna catch you as someone catches a fish, God says to a later Pharaoh. And it says of Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah 51, 34, King of Babylon has devoured me and crushed me. He has set me down like an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster, a tannin. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has washed me away. Now, some of you say, Pastor Michael, why are you sharing these verses? Simply put, because if you investigate this a little bit more, some people believe that when Aaron threw down the staff, it turned into a crocodile, not a snake. And there were Egyptian gods that had human bodies and crocodile heads. If you've seen Cecil B. DeMille's uh, famous The Ten Commandments, the Pharaoh is actually, I believe he sets his dead child on one of these so-called gods and prays that his child will come back to life. In Deuteronomy 32, 33, it says, their wine is the venom of serpents, tannin, and the deadly poison of cobras. I think this solves it for me in We'll move on, uh, but look at verse 15. This is in the, the plague of the water turned into blood. It says, go to Pharaoh, Exodus seven fifteen. In the morning, as he is going out to the water, station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was what? Turned into a serpent. So I think the immediate commentary, and this is where I would say for those of you who are studying Hebrew and Greek and you're trying to go a little bit deeper, is the context often determines the word meaning. And this particular word, tanin or nakash, seems to have kind of various shades of meaning. And some scholars see in this the idea that God is sovereign over every creature, whether it's a crocodile or a snake or the ultimate serpent, Satan himself, God. Maybe that's why the variation is there. One writer says, the important point here is not zoological, but theological. The serpent was a symbol of Pharaoh's authority. That authority is being challenged. Pharaoh knew the challenge was coming and demanded a sign, and he got one. And you could see this almost as a contest where the bell is rung. Ding, ding. And here comes Moses and Aaron on this side. And on the other side is Pharaoh and all of his magicians and the power of Egypt. Who will win? Well, stay tuned for the next episode. And here they come. And Moses and Aaron came to the Pharaoh, verse 10, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And all God's people said, yeah, finally. They finally did what God commanded them to do without any more questioning. Are you sure? Are you sure you got the right guy? I don't know. I'm not good at talking. At what point will we finally say, Lord, I'm just going to do what you say for me to do? Amen? Some of you are like, Amen. And so they obeyed. And Aaron threw his staff down. I don't know if he took Moses' staff or it was Aaron's staff. But it is interesting, within the Ark of the Covenant later, Hebrews 9.4 says, inside the Ark of the Covenant was some things. It was, there was uh, having a gold altar of incense. The Ark of the Covenant had gold all around it. Inside the Ark was the golden jar of manna to remember God's miracle feeding of the Israelites. Aaron's rod which budded and the tablets of the covenant were inside the Ark. And later, Aaron's rod that budded was a sign of his fruitful high priestly ministry, that it flowered, and it would ultimately flower under the Messiah. I don't know whose staff it was, if Aaron had a separate one, or if he just took Moses's, I'm assuming, the latter. And he threw it down, literally he hurled it down before Pharaoh and his serpent, serpent, <laughs> serpents, maybe that was on purpose, and it became a serpent. They came in. Maybe something like this, let my people go. You're going to have to show me a sign. Boom, down goes the staff and now, If you're standing there, you have to go, wow, impressive. <laughs> I wouldn't want anybody doing that in my living room. Uh, but it becomes this serpent. You could say they threw down. <laughs> they came right into Pharaoh's throne his command center, and threw down. And here's something from my notes. 
The God of the Bible will ultimately challenge and defeat all the false gods of Egypt, in quotes. Would to God that we would lay down our false gods before him. Whatever false gods we happen to worship, the Holy Spirit eventually will confront them. Have you noticed? All the things that we hold on to, God wants to swallow up. And sometimes we hold on to things because of fear. And as I read uh, more on the Egyptians and snakes and stuff like that, you come to find out that part of the reason that they were so enamored with the serpent was that they were afraid of the serpent. And so they tried to kind of embrace this and uh, deal with their fear. God wants to deal with our fears as well. What's the purpose of this particular sign? I think it's just that. God wants to deal with the darkest things in our lives. Maybe even the things that we find ourselves gravitated to and we don't even know why. Here's one commentator. The Egyptians were fascinated with snakes partly because they were afraid of them. Many of them carried amulets to protect them from Apaphos, Apaphos, the serpent god who personified evil. He was the god of darkness and chaos. Egyptian literature contains various spells and incantations to afford protection from a snake bite. It was this fear of snakes that led Pharaoh to use a serpent as a symbol of royal authority. His ceremonial headdress, like the famous death mask of Tutankhamun, was created with a fierce female cobra. Let's go to that photo for a second. I want you to see. In 1925, they uh, found the uh, Tutankhamun um, burial chamber. I hope we have the photo back there. Okay, one sec. You're going to see that there is a vulture on top of the headdress, and there is a female cobra ready to strike. So just take a look at the top of the headdress. This is something that you can see even today. It's in, the, uh, it's in a museum in Egypt, I believe in Cairo. And you can see on the right side of the headdress is, you, on the left is the vulture, on the right side is the cobra. And this was a death mask. This was a funerary mask that Tutankhamun wore. But it seems to be uh, common that this is how history verifies. You know, the history is trying to catch up with the Bible is what we should say, right? And so this is what the Egyptians did. And this is a piece of, um, you know, something from history, archaeology, that would give us a little bit more of affirmation of what they were into. The idea was that the Pharaoh would terrorize his enemies the way a cobra strikes fear into her prey. Despite the fear of snakes, the ancient Egyptians nevertheless were drawn to worship them. This is how Satan generally operates, still quoting, using fear to gain power. I would say this last year, we've seen a whole lot of that. Serpent worship was particularly strong in the Nile Delta, where the Hebrews lived. The Egyptians built a temple in honor of the snake goddess Wajit, who was represented by the hieroglyphic sign of the cobra. Some of the pharaohs believed that she had brought them to the throne and invested them with her divine powers. Others considered her to be the, their protector. In an inscription found at Tanis, Pharaoh Taharka claimed, I had taken the diadems of Ray, and I had assumed a double serpent crest as the protection of my limbs. After surveying other evidence, John Currid concludes, the serpent-crested diadem of Pharaoh symbolized all the power, sovereignty, and magic with which the gods endued the king. By finding his security in the serpent god, Pharaoh was actually making his allegiance with Satan. The ancient manuscripts are explicit about this. When Pharaoh ascended the throne of Egypt, he would take the royal crown and say these very words. Get this. This is scary. He would say, Egypt, he would take the royal crown and say, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule, a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits, close quote. To the throne, the Pharaoh would go calling out, to the snake god. This is reminiscent of some stories we've heard where people in showbiz and rock and roll sell their, sell their soul to the devil. For what? For temporary power and fame. 
I'll do whatever it takes. I don't care what power I have to call upon. I don't care if it's dark or light. I don't care who it is. And some people who get involved in the new age, and you guys need to hear what I'm about to say because now there are things amalgamating with Christian belief and there are ideas from the East that are being embraced by Christians and I'm not sure we know what we're dealing with and I'm telling you, that people have read some of these books, they've called out, they've done some of these mantras and found themselves in a tough spot. I've dealt with some of it personally, and I can tell you, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. And who knows whether the Pharaoh himself was possessed by Satan. Maybe that's what's really going on here. Maybe when Aaron and uh, Moses show up, that's the power that ultimately dominates this man because he's opened himself up to it. Because he's called upon these spirits to give him power to rule. And of all things, a snake. All we have to do is go back to Genesis chapter three, amen? The fall chapter, and there's Eve hanging by the tree that said wet paint. What was she doing there? We don't know. Making sure it was really wet. Where was Adam? We don't know. Probably watching the World Series, something. And the serpent showed up, and he was more crafty than all the beasts of the field. And what did he say? Did God really say? Right? Some people say, a serpent speaking, come on. Oh, it's what the Bible says. But it says that the, the animal itself was simply a tool for the ultimate serpent. Later, the book of Revelation will call him the serpent of old who leads people astray, who is on the hunt always, who loves to operate in these dark places, but also loves to masquerade as an angel of light. You can be religious and still follow me. He even said to Jesus, hey, just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to defeat me. You don't have to, right? This is what he does. He's a liar and the father of lies. It's hard to imagine that an individual would start crying out to snake gods. Oh, but it happens. Because people are enamored with this stuff. And they think, well, if I can call out and get some power, if it gives me power over my enemies. And when God curses the serpent, he says, basically, you're going to go to the dust and on your belly... That's how you're going to move around. Cursed are you more than cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, Genesis 3:14. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, who's the woman, brethren? Israel. Who does Moses and Aaron represent? Israel, who is in Egyptian bondage under the snake? Israel. And Moses is saying, this ain't gonna happen no more. And down goes the staff and it turns into a serpent. And I think the Pharaoh's got the message now. We got a contest on because there's power here too. Some power that maybe he experienced, maybe he talks about or doesn't talk about, I don't know. And it goes on to say of this serpent between your offspring and hers, the ultimate offspring, the ultimate seed is the Messiah coming from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and down through the line. He will crush your head, the serpent, and you will strike him on his heel, Genesis 3.15. Isn't it interesting that this captures this long battle going all the way to something that's called the proto-evangel, the first uh, articulation of the hope of a coming Messiah all the way back in Genesis 3, 15, right in the fall chapter, right with the serpent there and the ultimate serpent, God says, a Messiah's coming. He's gonna crush your head. You're gonna bruise his heel. You're gonna strike at him. He is gonna die for the sin of the world, but ultimately he will crush your head. Quite a picture, isn't it? To see these things coming together and to see the battle right before us. 
And so the Pharaoh called for backup. <laughs> the Pharaoh also called 11 for the wise men and the sorcerers and the, they also, the magicians of Egypt. What did they do? They did the same, that's a key phrase, the same with their secret arts. All of a sudden, Pharaoh says, I need backup. <laughs> Come on in. And magicians in Egypt were, uh, if you perfected your craft, you were someone that they looked to, you were kind of like famous. And wouldn't you imagine that the best of the best were in Pharaoh's court? Don't you think Pharaoh hired the magicians who had the most, you know, credentials, the most credibility, if you will, in quotes, in Egypt? That's who he would get to come, to stand by his side. And some people say, how did they do it? Did they do it by sleight of hand, magic? Uh, were they just clever? Did they use something called prestidigitation? Everybody say that five times fast. Prestidigitation, no, don't do it. And that's just sleight of hand. Were they just good? And they say that there's a way, and there's a, a record of a tourist in Egypt that said there was a way that they could grab a cobra and they would paralyze the snake with a certain pinch. How many of you remember when Spock could do that to people? Back at Star Trek. <laughs> well, they could pinch the cobra and it would just become basically paralyzed. And they could hold it in that position. And from a distance, it would look like a staff. And then when they wanted to impress you, they would release the pinch and throw the, the uh what appeared to be a staff down and would turn into a serpent, simply just sleight of hand. And there, there's some evidence from the, the language of secret arts and even the history of Egypt that perhaps this was the case. And let me just say to you, when you're dealing with dark things, Walter Martin once said of the occult and so-called you know, uh, encounters that you might have with dark things, he said two-thirds of it is probably fake. But he said in his experience, one third of it is real. And I would tell you that that's probably the case. There's a lot of sham stuff out there and people go to palm readers and you know, they break into their trances and they look at the lines on your hand and oh, you're going to meet somebody. Oh. Will they be tall? Will they be handsome? Will they have money? Oh, but I've got some bad news. There's some weird squiggly lines on your hand. <laughs> you're only going to live another month. So you better, you better find them real quick. And then in the background you hear, do, 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 sorry. Anyway. And it may well be that even though these words, wise men speak of, it's chakam, or kakam, it's skilled diviners, sorcerers is a word, that means to try to divine things about the past, present, or future. Magicians is kartam, and it does have this idea of the secret arts. Did they really do it? And if they really did it, if they really took staffs and they also turned them into serpents, how did they do it? And by what power did they do it? And I don't think it's hard for any of us to figure out that if it's legit, and I... I don't know if ultimately it's the biggest thing in this message, but if they legitimately did it by dark power, then it was the power of Satan. It was the occult. It was witchcraft. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that the Antichrist is the one coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs, pretended signs and false wonders or Counterfeit wonders. Did you notice that there's nothing new with the enemy? He just tries to mimic what God does. Nothing new here. Oh, we, we can do it too. Throw your staff down. And later they're going to mimic some other things that it's going to make their life even worse. <laughs> so sad. Yeah, we can do it too. We can make more of this to bother us. <laughs> Isn't it glorious? <laughs> Actually, the later they, when God does a, another miracle in 819, they say this is the finger of God. They can only duplicate like the first couple of signs. 
Jesus says, for false Christs and false prophets, Matthew 24, 24, will arise, and he's talking about the last days, and show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. Even to the degree that it would appear they could call down fire from heaven. That, that's amazing. That's powerful. And people are enamored with power, but not all power is God's power. Not all power is light. And so they are able to duplicate the sign, which, you know, if you're Moses and Aaron, you, you have to be thinking, you know, you threw the staff down, you obey God, there it is, right? And then all of a sudden they come in and do the same. You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> maybe the snakes start squaring off. Now we, we see from the movie that I think there was maybe two or three of the serpents from the magicians, but I don't know how many there were actually. I don't see that the record says how many there were. Was it one on two? Was it one on five? Was there a whole host of them who threw their staffs down and it's a whole room full of snakes and here's, you know, Moses and Aaron's snake and maybe you think, uh-oh, here we go, squaring off. And each one threw down his staff and they turned into serpents, but... Can you imagine the magicians? <laughs> we, we turned our stay. We did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, good job. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> and all God's people said, gold? <laughs> and all of a sudden, the staff, and it's described, interestingly enough, as the staff, Aaron's staff, swallowed up their staffs. And the staff is a picture of what? Power. Who's going to rule? Aaron said, I don't know how long it took, but it must have been pretty fun for Aaron and Moses. <laughs> and the Pharaoh had to be thinking, uh-oh. And what's the message? I'm about to swallow you up, Pharaoh. I'm about to swallow your army in the Red Sea. I'm about to deal the death blow. The last plague will be the death of even your firstborn. See, I am God. And if you don't submit, you're going to be swallowed up. The God of Israel is the Lord of Egypt, the God of the heavens and the earth. Don't you be afraid, brothers and sisters, of the lies and the things where people say, oh, you know, God's not in control. God doesn't rule. Yes, he does. And they didn't have the swallowing up trick in their bag of tricks because their serpents were gone. <laughs> Can you imagine being one of those magicians? Could I, could I get my stick back? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's mine now. <laughs> what are the things that have a grip on your life that need to be swallowed up? What are the fears that need to be swallowed up? Hebrews 2.9 says these words. It says... We see Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, because of the suffering of death, Hebrews 2.9, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we're human, he himself likewise partook of the same. He became human, Hebrews 2.9 and 14 and 15, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. This last year has been a scary time, hasn't it? We have encountered things that we probably never could have imagined in our lifetime. And it seems like just a little bit of normalcy is beginning to return, but there's still a lot of fear out there. But for the Christian, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but what? Power, love, and a sound mind. Because I know in whom I have believed. And so you would think at this point, if you were the Pharaoh sitting on the throne, you watched all these serpents get swallowed by Moses and Aaron's, wouldn't it be time to bow? Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, final verse, and he did not listen. Whenever your heart is hard, that's the natural uh, outgrowth. You don't listen. He did not listen to them as the Lord 
had said. Let me just read from one commentary because I think this will give you a, a good picture of the problem of a calloused heart. Pharaoh, if Pharaoh had realized how hard his heart was, he would have been terrified. The Egyptians believed that the heart was the essence of the person and thus the key to eternal life. Many of their temples and tombs depict a heart being weighed on the scale of, of justice. The meaning of the images is, is explained in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, found, found at the Palace of Anubis, in which a man named Ani enters the throne room of the gods of judgment. At the front stands the balance of truth, on which the, the death god Anubis will weigh the man's heart. Anubis is joined by Thoth, who will record the verdict, and by the goddess Amamit, who waits to devour the heart of the damned. Essentially, a monster waits to consume all heavy hearts. In order, an Egyptian belief, in order for you to make it to eternal life, your heart had to be as light as a feather. If it was too heavy and the, the scales tipped, your heart was too heavy and it went, there was a monster waiting to go to your heart. Wonderful! Let's go to church on Sunday. Hopefully I can be as light as a feather, as light as a feather. Please let me be as light as a feather. Please, please, please. Let me just, uh, a gentle breeze would just blow me around. I don't want to be heavy because if I'm heavy and it tips, there's the monster. That's what they believed. A works-based righteousness like all other religions of the world. You got to be good enough. You got to be smart enough. You, you better not have too much stuff when those scales get weighed. Because if they get weighed, you done. How many of you think you're going to make it? How many of you are as light as a feather right now? You're just going to walk out of here. You're not even going to touch the ground. You're not, oh, I don't have any problems. I, I've got no sin. I've got no problems. I've got no problem with him or her, the 91 freeway. No problem with my thought life. No problem with any of that. I'm never tempted. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm just. I'm right. Oh, goodness. We in trouble. If Egyptian beliefs of this time are true, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And some monster's just waiting to eat you up. Scary. But that's not the Bible's message. The Bible's message is that another one took our place. Another one who is perfect took on the serpent and the snake and made a spectacle of principalities and powers triumphing over them through the cross. It is finished. Paid in full. You don't have to be afraid. You have his righteousness credited to your account by faith. This is the gospel. This is the good news. We should proclaim it from the housetops. Pharaoh got a little picture of it. He got a picture of the power, if you will, of God. What if he weighed you in the balances today and you didn't have the covering of Christ? What would happen? I would not be as light as a feather, I can tell you that. This old heart, it needs transforming and softening and God ain't done. <laughs> Amen? How many of you have had some weeks, maybe even recently, where you're like, this old heart? I'm a Christian, but sometimes, woo-wee, light as a feather would not describe my heart. <laughs> but God is good. And he did for me what I can't do for myself. And he swallows up the fear of death, the enemy's ploys. My sin has been dealt with. And so the writer of Hebrews says, don't harden your heart. Today, if you would hear his voice. Bible students, you can write down Hebrews 3, 7, Hebrews 3, 8, Hebrews 3, 15, and Hebrews 4, 7. Three times the writer, would you just bow your heart with me, says, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Oh, Father, thank you. For this great picture of salvation before the Pharaoh with Aaron and Moses and the staffs that become serpents and the deeper message of how one day death will be swallowed up in victory because of what Jesus did. Oh, death, where is your sting? <laughs> Paul begins to mock death because its victory 
has been taken away. Indeed, we've said in the past, death has been defanged in Jesus Christ. It has no more bite because Jesus took the bite. He became a curse for us. He paid the ransom. He took the wrath. He swallowed up death for all time. And one day we will experience that. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Thank you that all the maladies of this life, all the things that weigh us down and freak us out and make, make us anxious, they'll be gone. And right now we have the promise, the Holy Spirit lives inside us, sealing us for the day when all of this will be realized. Won't you take heart, my brother, my sister? Won't you take a moment just to breathe in these truths? Let them lighten your heart. If you're a prodigal, this would be a great time not to be like the Pharaoh and to bow down right now before anything gets worse, before more of the false gods in your life have to be confronted and swallowed up. Bow to him now. Don't put it off. He loves you. And if you're not a believer and maybe this is a brand new story for you, Maybe you, you would say, you know what? I, I've tasted of some dark stuff and I've had a, a hard, heavy heart and I want to be free. That's what this story is about. It's about freedom. That's the gospel. Pray something like this. Jesus, I believe that you are God who became a man. I believe you lived the perfect life that I could never live. Pray it if it's you. I believe you died on that terrible cross for me. I believe that you took the judgment of God there, died in my place, rose from the dead, defeated death, that which is our mortal enemy, that which scares us, Lord, it scares me. Free me of that. And set my feet upon solid ground and lighten my load and take my burdens away. I, I give them to you afresh. Father, I pray that the living waters that you promise would flow out to your people. I thank you for every precious soul that's here, every family that's represented here, all the people who are fighting the good fight of faith together side by side. I thank you for your grace and your patience and your love. You are so good. I was just so taken by that as we sang it. You are good. You're so good. So you've been so good to me. You've been my shepherd all of my life. Just take a few moments. Do a little business with the Lord. If you need his touch, maybe you're going through something that you need some healing, you need strength. There's strength for you today. He is greater than everything that you're afraid of, everything that might assault you in a given day or week. Even the thoughts in your head that sometimes betray you, he can conquer all of that and much, much more. Thank you, Father. As your people are seeking your face, I just pray that your mercy would wash over us. You are good. Let us leave here light, joyful, blessed. In Christ's name I pray.